0: Message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know Him and make Him known. I don't know if you're anything like me, but there are times when I'm walking through our house, and Aaron and I, we, we try to keep things picked up and cleaned up, but we work, we get busy, we have three kids. There are times where we walk through the house, and you look around, and you see that basket of laundry that hasn't been folded yet. It's only been sitting there for like four days. It's fine. You see the dishes piled up on the sink that you haven't quite gotten to. You've run the dishwasher a couple times, but those extra dishes on the sink just haven't gotten to them. Or you look around, and and for us, there are crayons and markers and pieces of paper with artwork on every surface of our house, everywhere you turn, everywhere you look. And I walk through the house sometimes and we get to that point and I look and I just feel completely and utterly overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. Doing those few dishes doesn't seem like it's going to make a difference in light of all of this and that and that and that and everything else. Maybe, maybe, you've been, maybe you don't have that in, in your house. Maybe you're somebody who has that with your car. Maybe you've, you've always got the fast food wrappers on the floor in the back, right? Maybe you're somebody who has that at your office. Right? All the paperwork on every desk and every counter space that you have, you're like, I know exactly where that is. But you ask somebody else to get something for you, like, there's no way they are ever going to find that thing. <laughs> Maybe you you have that in some of your relationships or or your finances. Or maybe you feel that way when you look at your future, like, I just don't know where to go. I don't even know where to start because I feel so completely overwhelmed. And when you get to that point, there eventually comes a time to where you have to just do something, right? And usually there's something that kind of kicks you into motion, that gets you started on that one spot. For us, it's we have people in our house a lot, and part of the reason we do that is because it means we have to pick up before people come over. <laughs> so as long as people are going to come over at some point, we have to pick up. That's, our, that's, that's the motivation that gets us moving, that gets us to just start somewhere, to start the task. For the Israelites who were in the midst of God's reformation of their hearts, for them, what kicked them into action was the reading of God's word. And we discussed this last week. Right? They opened God's word and they were confronted with who he is and, and what he did. And they had to respond. This got them motivated. It got them inspired to repent of their sins and to obey the Lord. They saw his goodness. They saw his deliverance. They saw his provision. And they couldn't help but respond. So the question I want to ask us before we get into today's passage is this. How does our view of who God is and of what God has done drive us to grow and change and mature in our faith? How does it lead us to repentance and obedience? Well, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 9. And what I want to do today is I want to look through this passage. We're not going to read the entire thing, but I want, to, I want us to get an overview of what's going on here, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about how this applies to our lives. But Nehemiah chapter 9, if, if we wanted to simply break it down into three sections, I could give you three simple words that break this entire passage down. Separation, confession, and action verses one through the first half of five are going to give us a picture of separation then the second half of five through 37 is is confession and then verse 38 gives us the action all right it starts in in verses one through five a with the separation and and you might ask well separation from what And, and for the israelites this is a separation from unholiness let's Read just verses one and two. It says, On the 24th day of this month, by the way, this month is the seventh month, the one we talked about last week. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Okay, stop right there. the, The Israelites were confronted with God's word, right? with the truth of who he is, with what he had done. And they were overwhelmed. And last week we talked about they were so overwhelmed that they were supposed to be celebrating, but they couldn't because they were broken by the fact that they had rejected God, that they had lived in this unholiness. And so Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites said, whoa, hold on guys, this is, not the time to, this is not the time to mourn your sin. This is the time to celebrate God's provision and God's deliverance. So go home and we're gonna celebrate. And so they celebrated And at the end of that celebration, he says, okay, now is the time for us to talk about our sin. And so as the Israelites are confronted, they separate themselves from those who are not of Israelite descent, and they begin confessing their sins. And and what they do, it says in verse three, is that they read the law for a fourth of a day, and then they confess their sins and worship for a fourth of a day. So three hours of reading God's word, and three hours of confession and worship. All of this to separate themselves from the sin, from the unholiness in which they had lived for all of these years, when they had forgotten God's goodness, when they'd forgotten God's deliverance, when they had not obeyed, when they had not sought the Lord in their lives. They separate from unholiness. Then in the second half of verse 5 through verse 37, we get this prayer. Right? They've now come, they've, they've confessed their sins, and they're going to they're, they're gonna offer up this, this prayer. It's a prayer of confession and repentance. And it works from creation until the return of the exiles to proclaim God's goodness, even in the midst of their rebellion and their forgetfulness. Right, watch how this works. Skip down to, to verse 6. And, and we're just going to look at a portion of this. Verse 6, the people pray, You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens, with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. Right? He says, From creation you are God. Now you skip down to verse 9 and 10. It says, You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. Okay, so he says, At creation, you were God. You were in control. Now he says, Even while we were enslaved in Egypt, you were God. You were in control. And you go on to verse 15. And it says, you provided bread from heaven for our hunger. You brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go and possess the land you had sworn to give to them. He says, okay, even when we came out of of Egypt, even when we rebelled, even when we wandered in the desert, you met all of our needs because you are God and you are in control. You are good and you took care of us. And all of these things are remembered until, get to verse 16 through 19. And in light of all that God has done, all the ways he has delivered and provided, verse 16 through 19 says, But, but, our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. Even after they had cast an image of a calf for for themselves and said, this is our God who brought you out of Egypt, and they had committed terrible blasphemies. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. God, even though all God did all this stuff, all this amazing things, but we still turned away from you. And in spite of our rejection, you still loved us. And what did we do? We rejected you harder. And you still refused to abandon us. And this is the cycle you get through this whole prayer. God is good. God provides. God delivers and we rejected him, so he provided, and he delivered, and we rejected him. So he provided and delivered, and we rejected him. We see it again if you go on to verses, uh, verse twenty-four. You see the other one says, so their descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued the Canaanites. You inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and their surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased with them, God, you brought us into the promised land. You delivered this land that we looked at from the outset and said, there's no way we can defeat these people, but God is victorious until verse 26, where it says, but... But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies. Get it again? God's good. God delivers. God brings blessings. And we reject him because we got a better way. We have a better idea. And this goes on and on and on until you get to verse 36 and 37. It says, here we are today. Right now, they bring it all the way up to their day. It says, now, here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruits and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. As good as God has been, we continue to reject him. God still provides. But what it's done is it's led the Israelites to this place, to where they see it is our sin. It is that we have, this isn't that God has abandoned us. It's not that God let us down. It's not that God rejected us. It's that we, in our sin, rejected him and tried to do it our way, and we find ourselves here now, slaves in the land that he had promised our ancestors. It's this confession of their sin. This isn't God's fault. This is because we sin. Because we are sinners before an awe-inspiring, good, holy, faithful God. Confession. But this confession leads to something else in verse 38. It leads to the action. Watch what happens now, verse 38. And view of all this, right? this points back to that whole prayer of confession, in view of the fact that God is good, that God has taken care of us, that God continues to provide and deliver, and we continue to reject him, but he doesn't abandon us. In view of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. So, responsive action to their confession. The people take this oath before the Lord, committing themselves with the accountability of their leadership to obedience before the Lord. So in this chapter, again, we get the separation. They're they're confronted with the truth of God's word. And so they separate from unholiness. They confess their sins before the Lord. And then they set themselves to action. How does this apply to us today? What do we do with this? What do we do with this separation, confession, and action? Well, I want us to focus this morning on this prayer of confession and how Israel's confession awakens in them repentance and obedience. And through their awakening that brings confession and obedience, we are reminded of three truths about the God we serve that should move us to be a people of confession and obedience, that is awakened through the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. Three truths, and the first begins with this. It's the fact that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is reigning and ruling over all things in all places and at all times. This prayer of confession from the Israelites reveals the the magnitude of God's power when measured against the measly crumbs of what you and I are capable of doing and accomplishing. It's a reminder of the separation between our ability and our God's power. As I read through this, I counted in my translation 35 times 35 times in this prayer, where it refers to God's sovereign power, where it says, God, you did this. You created the heavens and the earth. You heard us in Egypt and answered our cries. You delivered us. You gave us water to drink. You gave us food to eat. You conquered the land of Canaan. You sent us in. Every single good thing that happens in this passage begins with the word you. Referring to our God. In the New Testament, James reminds us uh, of this power and the goodness that comes from our sovereign God. When in James 1.17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. Right, God does not change. That same God who was conquering over, who, who created the heavens and the earth, who brought about his people, who led them out of captivity, who gave them the promised land, who delivered them time and time again, that same God who was victorious and all-powerful, he does not change. He is still victorious and all-powerful today. He is still sovereign. And so every good and perfect gift, every life-giving, life-sustaining gift comes from God because he Has authority over all things. He reigns supreme over heaven and earth. He reigns supreme over the good and even over the wicked. He reigns supreme over the spirit and over the flesh. He reigns supreme over earthly rulers and subjects. He even reigns supreme over Republicans and Democrats. True story. See, and because of this, because this perfect, awe-inspiring, all-powerful God reigns over all things, in all places, in all times, because of this, we can rest in the goodness of his authority to carry out his perfect will in our lives and in the world around us. We can dwell in the fact that he is still in control. Why is this important? Because it's really easy for us to dwell in the fear and the worry of this life. Amen? Maybe it's just me. Okay. It's just me. I have a tendency to get worried about things. To be fearful over what's going to happen next. What's coming down the line? Will I be able to handle this? Will I be able to do that? How will I take care of my family if... Dwelling in fear and worry over the situations around us? In doing so, we deny God's sovereignty. When you and I worry and fear, we deny God's sovereignty. And we'd never think of it that way, right? We'd never say it that way. And you might even right now be thinking, no, that's not true. No, I worry about things because it's reasonable for me to worry about them. No, no. No, God's word says, do not worry. We can be concerned over things. We should recognize when there are issues, when there are problems. We should show appropriate concern. But fear and worry is dwelling on our power, not being able to handle the situation that is coming at us. It's a denial that God is strong enough and powerful enough to handle what is happening in our lives. On the other hand, when we dwell in the sovereignty of God, we get to live in the center of his peace. When we truly embrace the sovereignty of our God, we find a peace and a calm that goes well beyond any reasonable lengths. Because when we dwell in the sovereignty of God, when we trust in that over our power and our strength, then we realize that we don't have to control every detail of life, we don't have to work out every angle because God is in control. Now, that doesn't mean we don't put any effort into life at all because God's in control so I can just sit back and be lazy. No, but we don't have to worry or fear because if God is who he says he is and he does what he says he does and he is sovereign, isn't he already victorious? Yeah. So we can rest in that, even in the trials, even in the difficulty. We still hurt, yes. We still feel pain, We still struggle. We still may never understand what God is doing, but we know he is sovereign. He is in control. So, do we really believe that God is in control? Do we truly know and trust the sovereignty of who he is? If God is sovereign, which he is, then we lean into point number two. We remember that God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment is righteous. Just as we read through that prayer and we see that every good thing in that passage begins with the understanding that God did that, we also read through that prayer and see that every heartache, every disappointment, everything that doesn't work, every destructive thing that happens begins with human activity. God was good, God provided, God delivered, but they, our ancestors, our people, we rejected him. It's a confession of the utter brokenness of mankind. And it reminds us that that when God exercises his judgment, he does so rightly or righteously. In Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23, Jesus is talking to the the, the religious leaders of Israel, and they're having this argument about washing their hands and, and being clean and what they touch and all this, and then Jesus says this. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a person. And there's something that stood out to me as I, I read this that I don't know that I've, I've ever thought through before I was studying it for this. In verse 21, Jesus says, For from within, out of people's hearts, come what's evil. Right now, And I think every time I've read that before, every time I've studied that, I've gone and kind of read that as Jesus saying, well, out of the hearts of evil people is what comes the evil that they do. That's not what the verse says. The literal translation of that verse is, out of the heart of man, out of the hearts of man comes the evil that exists in the world. I don't think he makes a distinction between those people and us. What is evil comes out of our hearts, the natural state, the natural inclination of our hearts, because as we've talked about many, many times, we do not, are not naturally inclined towards holiness and goodness, towards love and grace and mercy. We are naturally inclined towards evil thoughts, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and all the other evil stuff. The heart of man is the natural state in which you and I live apart from Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. Right? Jesus says, You can't do anything good, anything worthwhile, anything that gives glory and honor to God apart from me. Why? Because your natural inclination is towards evil. You need me in order to overcome the flesh because you can't do it on your own. If I were to go out today, I promise I won't do this, but if I were to go out today and rob a bank. <sighs> what happens when I get caught tomorrow? Because I'm not a good bank robber, I'm pretty sure I would get caught. What do you expect? What do we expect when I get caught? I expect to go to jail, right? Nobody would fight against that and be like, oh, well, he was probably just joking. (laughs) No, we expect, I tried to rob a bank. I did it poorly. I got caught. I expect to go to jail. That's the reasonable, natural consequence God's sovereignty means that he sets the standard for what is good and right and true. And the fact that you and I fail constantly to uphold that means we deserve nothing but death and separation from him. So any exercise of God's wrath and judgment is reasonable and well-earned on our part. It is right for him to judge us because we deserve nothing good. We deserve no blessings. We deserve God's judgment. And that that doesn't mean that if we haven't trusted Christ with our lives that we never will have anything good happen in our lives or because we deserve judgment, God will never give us anything good. No, he, he will give us good things. He will bless us sometimes to show us his goodness in spite of our fallen nature, in spite of our rejection of him. But, we realize that that's not what we deserve. God's judgment is righteous, always, and in every situation. When we stand firm in God's laws and on, this, and on his standards, then we can remember that every blessing we have points to God's goodness, not to our ability or what we've earned, because we deserve God's punishment, God's wrath, God's righteous judgment. So let me ask, do we look around ourselves and see the the things we go through, see the suffering in the world, and do we approach that from a view of, well, that seems like really unfair punishment? Or do we recognize the righteousness of our God through our suffering, through our pain? through the times where he doesn't bless us, but allows us to feel what judgment is. God's sovereign and righteous judgment should be a terrifying concept to us, right? The fact that I deserve absolutely nothing good and I deserve for God to strike me down right here, right now, like that's what i've earned in my life that's a terrifying concept and it would be terrifying if we're not for one more thing one more thing god is sovereign god's judgment is righteous but god's mercy is glorious number 3 god's mercy is glorious Man, when we read this prayer of confession, and and if you haven't, find some time this week and just read through these verses. Because the contrast between the perfect and holy sovereignty of God and, and the wretchedness of our own hearts, a wretchedness that deserves his judgment, reminds us of just how amazingly glorious God's grace and mercy are. We remember again, that there's none of us who uphold his law. None of us who live without sin. None of us who are perfect. When Solomon prays to, to dedicate the temple in 1 Kings 8, verse 46, he speaks to God and he says, God, okay, when your people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, right, he hedges his bets, even in the temple, because he's like, God, we're going to mess this up. Like, you know us you know we're going to blow it. So let's just start right there, assuming we will. He's, and then he seeks God's compassion. Isaiah says it in the well-known passage in Isaiah 53, verse 6, where he says, we all like sheep have gone astray. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in, in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the only reasonable response from God towards his creation is his righteous wrath and judgment is destruction is allowing us to lead ourselves to our deaths again Paul in Romans 6 first half of 23 many of you know this well he says for the wages of sin right for the wages of what is natural to us what comes easily to us what makes sense to us the wages of sin is what death. Now all of us who have failed, that's all of us, all of us who have failed have earned death in God's rejection. But praise God, we get the second half of that verse, right? The second half of Romans 6.23, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord the unearned, undeserved gift of God's grace, God's mercy, saying, I know you messed up, I know you blew it, but I've provided everything you need through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That mercy is incredible. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to deserve it. Every once in a while, I, I do like I go speak somewhere, or I'll go play music somewhere, and as a payment, you will get like gift cards to restaurants, and sometimes they'll give you one to a really nice place that would never go otherwise, right? So Aaron and I have had a couple meals at places where we we would never eat there, because I get the bill, and I look, I'm like, yeah. <gasps> oh, oh man, good, we got this, we got this gift card, right? And while the food is good, I mean, it's no Long John Silver's. (laughs) But while the food is good, uh, maybe you've experienced this, it's better when it's free, isn't it? Food always tastes better when it's free. God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness is free to us. It's been paid for. It's been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. But it's free to us. And we all have, we all have those thorns in our flesh. We all have that one thing, that one failure in our life that, that when we think back to it, it brings pain to our hearts. We all have something that even if you only think of it occasionally makes you feel completely unworthy of God's love and forgiveness. Right? Even as I say that, A lot of you are thinking of that one thing right now, aren't you? Maybe you failed a child. Maybe you hurt a parent. Maybe you rejected a friend. Maybe you turned your back on something you knew God had called you to do and God wanted you to do. Whatever it is, you think about that, and even for that moment, it just just rips you apart, right? As you think of that thing, let me tell you two things. First, that thing that tears you apart, that makes you feel completely unworthy of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. Let me tell you, you're right. You are unworthy. So am I. So is the person on your right. So is the person on your left. So is the person in front of you. So is the person behind you. You are right. You are unworthy. We are unworthy. But second, let me tell you this you are dead wrong. Because God loves you more than you can ever begin to imagine. And His mercy is ready and waiting to release you from that guilt, from the shame, from whatever it is that's holding you back. His love, his mercy is waiting to just wrap its arms around you and redeem you from that thing that holds you back from giving yourself fully and completely to him. There's no other picture of this than of the cross, that the God who created you, who made you to be who you are, loves you so much that while you continue to turn your back on him, while we reject him time and time again, doing what we want to do, doing what we think is best, doing what we think we feel we deserve, we act in rebellion. And while he should strike us down in that moment, instead he continues to love us and call us to him. And as we've turned and we've run time and time again, at just the right time, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born in a manger in Bethlehem. That he would grow up in this, what was a dirty little backwater town that nobody knew about or cared about. So that he could walk the face of the earth proclaiming the forgiveness and the redemption of God's love. So that he could be rejected by his own people so that because of your sin and my sin, he could be nailed to a cross where he would bleed and suffer and die, a more horrific death than you and I uh, probably think is possible. By the offer of his body and his blood, he paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the penalty for our rejection of God's love. And when he was laid in the tomb, he came three days later to leave that cave empty, all so that you and I could be made right before our God and King, not because of who we are, not because of what we do, certainly not because of what we have earned or deserve, but because of God's rich and overwhelming mercy and grace and love and do we see, do we understand, do we rejoice in the glory of God's mercy today? Not just in the stuff we've done wrong, not just in the stuff we've done right, but in the glory of who he is. God is sovereign. His judgment is righteous and his mercy is glorious. These are nothing new, right? These are not new truths we've never heard before. In fact, there's some of you who probably think, well, well Jonathan, we, we know this stuff, right? This is like Christian faith 101. Right? Shouldn't we talk, be talking about deeper things? Shouldn't we be talking about something else? <laughs> and I respond with two things. First of all, we, we read through scripture. So God said this, I don't decide what we talk about on Sunday morning. God does. His word does. But second, and more more importantly, why does God say this again? Why does God teach us this again? Because He teaches us over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture. Why does He come back to this again? Why is this so important? It's important because we, like the Israelites, are forgetful people. Remember how they got here? They had rejected God, they'd forgotten His word. When they start reading the law, they're like, we, we didn't know this. They forgot. They needed the reminder through the reading of the law to bring them back to repentance and faithful obedience. We need the reminder of these truths again today as well. We need the reminder of this over and over and over again. We need to remember what God has done in our lives and who he is if we are to be a people of repentance and faithful obedience. We need to return constantly to God's power, to Jesus' sacrifice, to the Spirit's work in our hearts if we are not only to do what God's called us to do, but to be who God has called us to be. So church, family, may we never forget these foundations of our faith. That God is sovereign, his judgment is righteous, but his mercy is glorious and let's continue to build upon those to grow and to mature in how we know and love and serve God's kingdom by living out these foundational truths. But may we come back often to the peace and joy and hope is found in the simplicity of the Christian faith, that through the body and the blood of Jesus, we are redeemed, washed clean, and made right before a good and holy God Remembering always that we are undeserving, but God's love is overwhelming, so that we are never found wanting in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, you are so absolutely incredibly good. And we are blown away constantly by the way you love us and care for us, by the way you continue to forgive us with a mercy and a grace that is deeper than we can begin to wrap our heads around. And as we realize that, Father, may we be a people who are willing to separate from unholiness, to separate from the things that, that we think we want, that we think are so important to us that we might be brought back to you. And may we confess our sins agreeing with you that we are a people in need of salvation and a people who are unable to save ourselves. And in our confession, may that drive us to, to action, to remembering your glorious mercy and responding with joyful shouts, because we know, we know the way to salvation. Because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We are blessed to know him, love him, and serve him. So Father, may we be your people. May we live like your people. May we celebrate your love and your mercy as your people. We love you. And in your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.